Section 8 of Beacon Lights of History, Volume 8, Great Rulers, by John Lord. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by K. Hand. Gustavus Adolphus, Part 2. If ever the ruler of a nation is to be justified for going to war when his country is not actually invaded, it was doubtless Gustavus Adolphus. Had he withheld his aid, the probability is that all Germany would have succumbed to the Austrian emperor, and have been incorporated with his empire, and not only Germany, but Denmark and Sweden. The Protestant religion would have been suppressed in northern Germany as it was in France by Louis the Fourteenth. There would have been no Protestant country in Europe, but England and perhaps Holland. A united German empire, with the restoration of the Catholic religion, would have been a most dangerous power, much more so than at the present day. Some there are, doubtless, who would condemn Gustavus for the invasion of Germany, and think he ought to have stayed at home and let his unfortunate neighbors take care of themselves the best way they could. Perhaps the peace societies would take this ground, and the apostles of thrift and material prosperity. But I confess, when I see a man like the King of Sweden, with all the temptations of luxury and ease, encountering all sorts of perils and fatigues, yea, offering up his life in battle in order to emancipate suffering humanity, then every generous impulse and every dictate of enlightened reason urge me to add my praises with those of past generations in honor of such exalted heroism. According to the authors of those times, signs and prodigies appeared, to warn mankind of the sanguinary struggle which was now to take place. In the dead of night, on wild heaths, in solitary valleys, the clang of arms was heard. Armies were seen encountering each other in the heavens, marshaled by aerial leaders, while monstrous births, mock suns, and showers of fire filled the minds of the superstitious with fear and dread. It would be puerile to believe these statements, yet if the stupendous framework of external nature ever could exhibit sympathy with the brief calamities of man, it may well be supposed to have been displayed when one of the fairest portions of the earth was again to be ravaged with fire and sword and when the melancholy lesson, so often exemplified before, was to receive still further confirmation, that of all the evils with which divine wisdom permits this world to be visited, none can be compared to those which the wrath of man is so often eager to inflict upon his fellows. I need not detail the various campaigns of the Swedish hero, his marchings and countermarchings, his sieges and battles and victories, until the power of Austria was humbled and northern Germany was delivered. The history of all war is the same. There is no variety except to the eye of a military man. Military history is a dreary record of dangers, sufferings, mistakes, and crimes. Occasionally it is relieved by brilliant feats of courage and genius which create enthusiastic admiration, but generally it is monotonous. It has but little interest except to contemporaries. Who now reads the details of our last great war? Who has not almost forgotten the names of its ordinary generals? how sickening the description of the crusades the mind cannot dwell on the conflagrations the massacres the starvations the desolations of an invaded country few even read a description of the famous battles of the world which decided the fate of nations when battles and marches are actually taking place and all is uncertainty then there is a vivid curiosity to learn immediate results but when wars are ended we forget the intense excitements which we may have felt when they were taking place we gaze with eager interest on a game of football, but when it is ended we care but little for the victors. It is only when the remote consequences of great wars are traced by philosophical historians, revealing the ways of providence, retribution, and eternal justice, 
that interest is enkindled no book to me is more dreary and uninteresting than the campaigns of frederick the second though painted by the hand of one of the greatest masters of modern times even interest in the details of the battles of napoleon is absorbed in the interest we feel in the man how he was driven hither and thither by the providence he ignored and made to point a moral to an immortal tale all we care about the histories of wars is the general results and the principles to be deduced as they bear on the cause of civilization it was fortunate for the fame and the cause of gustavus that at the very outset of his career when he landed in pomerania with his small army of twenty thousand men the emperor had been prevailed upon by a pressure he could not resist and the intrigues of all the german princes to dispense with the services of wallenstein spain france bavaria the whole electoral college catholic as well as protestant clamored for the discharge of the most unscrupulous general of modern times he was detested and feared by everybody humanity shed tears over his exactions and cruelties while general fears were aroused that his influence was dangerous to the public peace most people supposed that the war was virtually ended and that he was therefore no longer needed loath was ferdinand to part with the man to whom he was indebted for the establishment of his throne and it seems he was also personally attached to him long did he resist expostulations and threats he felt as poor ganginelli felt when called upon by the bourbon courts of europe to annul the charter of the jesuits wallenstein would probably have been retained by ferdinand had this been possible but the emperor was forced to yield to overwhelming importunities so the dismissal of the general was decreed at the diet of worms and a messenger of the emperor delivered to the haughty victor the decree of his sovereign wallenstein was then at the head of one hundred thousand men would he obey the order would he retire to private life ambitious and unscrupulous as he was he knew that no one however powerful could resist an authority universally conceded to be supreme and legitimate it was like the recall of a proconsul by the roman emperor and senate he could resist for a time but resistance meant ultimate ruin he also knew that he would be recalled for he was necessary to the emperor he anticipated the successes of gustavus he was not prepared to be a traitor he would wait his time so he resigned his command without a moment's hesitation and with apparent cheerfulness he even loaded the messenger with costly gifts he appeared happy to be relieved from labor and responsibility and retired at once to his vast bohemian estates to pursue his favorite studies in the science of the stars to enshroud himself in mystery and gloom and dazzle his countrymen by the splendor of his life his table was never furnished with less than one hundred covers none but a noble of ancient family was entrusted with the office of superintending his household an armed guard of fifty men waited in his antechamber the ramparts of his castle were lined with sentinels six barons and as many knights constantly attended on his person sixty pages were trained and supported in his palace which was decorated with all the wonders of art and almost realized the fictions of eastern luxury in this splendid retirement wallenstein brooded on his wrongs and waited for the future the dismissal of this able general was a great mistake on the part of the emperor there were left no generals capable of opposing gustavus the supreme command had devolved on tilly able but bigoted and best known for his remorseless cruelty when magdeburg was taken by assault the direst tragedy of the war this city was one of the first to welcome the invasion of the king of sweden and also to adopt the protestant religion it was the most prosperous city in northern germany one of the richest and most populous against this mercantile fortress tilly directed all his energies for he detested the spirit of its people 
it was closely invested by the imperial troops and fell before gustavus could advance to relieve it it was neglected by the electors of saxony and brandenburg who were timid and pusillanimous and it was lulled into false security by its strong position and defences not sufficient preparation for defence had been made by the citizens who trusted to its strong walls and knew that gustavus was advancing to relieve it but unexpectedly it was assaulted in the most daring and desperate manner and all was loss on a sabbath morning the sudden toll of alarm bells the roar of artillery the roll of drums beating to quarter and the piercing cries of women and children mingled with the shouts and execrations of brutal and victorious soldiers announcing the fate of magdeburg forty thousand people men women and children were inhumanely butchered without necessity quarter compassion or remorse so cold and hard is war this was the saddest massacre in the history of germany and one of the greatest crimes that a successful general ever committed history has no language and painting no colors to depict the horrors of that dreadful scene and the interval of more than two hundred years has not weakened the impression of its horrors the sack of magdeburg stands out in the annals of war like the siege of tyre and the fall of jerusalem but it roused the protestants as from a trance it united them as the massacre of st bartholomew united the huguenots they marched under the standard of gustavus with the same enthusiasm that the huguenots showed under henry the fourth at the battle of ivory there was now no limit to the successes of the heroic swede the decisive battle of leipzig the passage of the lech the defense of nuremberg and the great final victory at lutzen raised the military fame of gustavus to a height unknown since hannibal led his armies over the alps where caesar encountered the patrician hosts at the battle of pharsalia no victories were ever more brilliant than his and they not only gave him a deathless fame but broke forever the austrian fetters his reputation as a general was fairly earned he ranks with conde henry the fourth frederick the great marlborough and wellington not perhaps with alexander caesar and napoleon those phenomena of military genius the exalted trio who shine amid the glories of the battlefield as homer dante and shakespeare loom up in fame over other immortal poets in two years from the landing of gustavus adolphus on the island of rudin near the southern extremity of the baltic he expelled a triumphant enemy from pomerania traversed the banks of the oder overran the duchy of mecklenburg ascended the elba delivered saxony from the armies of tilly crossed the thuringian forest entered frankfurt in triumph restored the palatinate to its lawful sovereign took possession of some of the strongest fortresses on the rhine overran bavaria occupied its capital crossed the danube and then returned on to saxony to offer up his life on the plains of lutzen there on that memorable battlefield where the descending sun of victory in later times shed a delusive gleam on the eagles of napoleon before his irremediable ruin did gustavus encounter the great antagonist of german liberties whom the necessities of the emperor had summoned from retirement wallenstein once more commanded the imperial armies but only on conditions which made him virtually independent of his master he was generalissimo with almost unlimited authority so long as the war should last and the emperor agreed to remove neither the general himself nor his officers and gave him principalities and spoils indefinitely he was the most powerful subject in europe and the greatest general next to gustavus i read of no french or english general who has been armed with such authority cromwell and napoleon took it it was not conferred by legitimate and supreme power had wallenstein been successful to the end he might have grasped the imperial sceptre 
Had Gustavus lived, he might have been the dictator of Germany. Impatient were both commanders to engage in the contest which each knew would be decisive. Long did they wait for opportunities. At last, on the 16th of November, 1632, the defenders and the foes of German liberties arrayed themselves for the great final encounter. The Protestants gained the day, but Gustavus fell, exclaiming to the murderous soldiers who demanded his name and quality, I am the King of Sweden, and I seal this day, with my blood, the liberties and religion of the German nation. The death of Gustavus Adolphus in the hour of victory was a shock which came upon the Allies like the loss of the dearest friend. The victory seemed too dearly purchased. The greatest protector which Protestantism ever knew had perished, as he himself predicted. Pappenheim, the bravest of the Austrian generals, also perished, and with him the flower of Wallenstein's army. Schiller thinks that Gustavus died fortunately for his fame, that had he survived the decisive battle of Lutzen, he not only could have dictated terms to the emperor, but might have yielded to the almost irresistible temptation of giving laws to the countries he had emancipated. But he did not live to be tried. That rarest of all trials was reserved alone for our Washington to pass through triumphantly, to set an example to all countries and ages of the superiority of moral to intellectual excellence. Gustavus might have triumphed like Washington, and he might have yielded like Cromwell. We do not know. This only we know, that he was not merely the great hero of the Thirty Years' War, but one of the best men who ever wore a crown that he conferred on the Protestants and on civilization an immortal and inestimable service, and that he is to be regarded as one of the great benefactors of the world. The Thirty Years' War loses its dramatic interest after the Battle of Lutzen. The final issue was settled, although the war was carried on sixteen years longer. It was not till 1648 that the Peace of Westphalia was signed, which guaranteed the liberties of Germany and established the balance of power. That famous treaty has also been made the foundation of all subsequent treaties between the European nations, and created an era in modern history. It took place after the death of Richelieu, when Mazarin ruled France in the name of Louis Fourteenth, and when Charles I was in the hands of Cromwell. With the death of Gustavus, we also partially lose sight of Wallenstein. He never afterwards gained victories commensurate with his reputation. He remained, after the Battle of Lutzen, unaccountably inactive in Bohemia. But if his military fame was tarnished, his pride and power remained. His military exactions became unendurable, and it is probable he was a traitor. So unpopular did he become, and so suspicious was the emperor who lost confidence in him, that he was assassinated by the order of his sovereign. He was too formidable to be removed in any other way. He probably deserved his fate. Although it was difficult to bring this great culprit to justice, yet his death is a lesson to traitors. There are many ways, says Cicero, in which a man may die, referring to the august usurper of the Roman world. I will not dwell on the sixteen remaining years of the Thirty Years' War. It is too horrible a picture to paint. The desolation and misery which overwhelmed Germany were most frightful and revolting. The war was carried on without system or genius. Expeditions were undertaken apparently with no other view than to desolate hostile provinces, till in the end provisions and winter quarters formed the principal object of the summer campaigns. Disease, famine, and want of discipline swept away whole armies before they had seen an enemy. Soldiers deserted the ranks and became roving banditti. Law and justice entirely vanished from the land. Germany, it is asserted by Mitchell, lost probably twelve millions of people. Before the war, the population was sixteen millions. At the close of the war, it had dwindled to four millions. 
The city of Augsburg at one time had 80,000 inhabitants. At the close of the war it had only 18,000. No less than 30,000 villages and hamlets were destroyed. Peaceful peasants were hunted for mere sport like the beasts of the forest. Citizens were nailed up and fired at like targets. Women were collected into bands, driven like slaves into camp, and exposed to indignities worse than death. The fields were allowed to run waste, and forests sprung up and covered entire districts which before the war had been under full cultivation. Amid these scenes of misery and ruin, vices were more marked than calamities. They were carried to the utmost pitch of vulgarity. Both Austrian and Swedish generals were often so much intoxicated, for days together, as to be incapable of service. Never was a war attended by so many horrors. Never was crime more general and disgusting. So terrible were the desolations that it took Germany one hundred years to recover from her losses. It never recovered the morality and religion which existed in the time of Luther. That war retarded civilization in all the countries where it raged. It was a moral and physical conflagration. But there is a God in this world, and the evils were overruled. It is certain that Protestantism was rescued from extermination on the continent of Europe. It is clear also that a barrier was erected against the aggressions of Austria. The Catholic and Protestant religions were left unmolested in the countries where they prevailed, and all religious sects were tolerated. Religious toleration, since the Thirty Years' War, has been the boast and glory of Germany. We should feel a sickening melancholy if something for the ultimate good of the world were not to come from such disasters as filled Germany with grief and indignation for a whole generation. For the immediate effects of the Thirty Years' War were more disastrous than those of any war I have read of in the history of Europe since the fall of the Roman Empire. In the civil wars of France and England, cities and villages were generally spared. Civilization in those countries has scarcely ever been retarded for more than a generation, but it was put back in Germany for a century. Yet the enormous sacrifice of life and property would seem to show the high value which providence places on the great rights of mankind in comparison with material prosperity or the lives of men. What is spiritual is permanent, what is material is transient. The early history of Christianity is the history of martyrdom. Five millions of crusaders perished that Europe might learn liberality of mind. It took 100 years of contention and two revolutions to secure religious toleration in England. France passed through awful political hurricanes in order that feudal injustice might be removed. In like manner, 12 millions of people perished in Germany that despotism might be rebuked. Fain would we believe that what little was gained proved a savor of life unto life, that seeds of progress were planted in that unhappy country which after a lapse of one hundred years would germinate and develop a higher civilization. What a great Protestant power has arisen in northern Germany to awe and keep in check not Catholicism merely, but such a hyperbean giant as Russia in its daring encroachments. But for Prussia, Russia might have extended her conquests to the south as well as to the west. But for the Thirty Years' War, no such empire as Prussia would have been probable, or perhaps possible. But for that dreadful contest, there might have been today only the Catholic religion among the descendants of the Teutonic barbarians on the continent of Europe. But for that war, the Austrian Empire might have retained a political ascendancy in Europe until the French Revolution, and such countries as Sweden and Denmark might have been absorbed in it, as well as Saxony, Brandenburg, and Hanover. What a terrible thing for Germany would have been the unbroken and iron despotism of Austria, extending its Briarian arms into every corner of Europe where the German language is spoken. 
What a blow such despotism would have been to science, literature, and philosophy! Would Catholic Austria, supreme in Germany, have established schools or rewarded literary men? The Jesuits would have flourished and triumphed from Pomerania to Wallachia, from the Baltic to the Danube. It may have taken one hundred years for Germany to rally after such miseries and disasters as I have had time only to allude to, and not fully to describe. But see how gloriously that country has at last arisen above all misfortunes. Why may we not predict a noble future for so brave and honest a people, the true descendants of those Teutonic conquerors to whom God gave, nearly two thousand years ago, the possessions and the lands of the ancient races who had not what the Germans had, a soul, the soul which hopes and the soul which conquers? The Thirty Years' War proved that liberty is not a dream, nor truth a defeated power. Liberty cannot be extinguished among such peoples, though oceans may overwhelm it and mountains may press it down. It is the boon of one hundred generations, the water of life distilled from the tears of unnumbered millions, the precious legacy of heroes and martyrs, who in different nations and in different ages, inspired by the contemplation of its sublime reality, counted not their lives dear unto them, if by the sacrifice of life this priceless blessing could be transmitted to posterity. Authorities Hallenberg's History of Gustavus Adolphus Freixel's History of Sweden, translated by Mary Howitt. Dreysen's Life of Gustavus Adolphus. S. R. Gardiner's Thirty Years' War. Schiller's Thirty Years' War. Schiller's Wallenstein, translated by Coleridge. Dr. Foster's Life of Wallenstein. Colonel Mitchell's Life of Gustavus Adolphus. Lord F. Edgerton's Life and Letters of Wallenstein. Chapman's History of Gustavus Adolphus. Biographie Universae, Article in Encyclopedia Britannica on Sweden, R. C. Trench's Social Aspects of the Thirty Years' War, Heidenreich's Life of Gustavus Adolphus. End of section 8.